Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. When faced with life's challenges, it can be tough training your brain to stay in the problem-solving mode that we'd all like to be constantly in. After all, when you learn to find your own solutions to problems, it's a great feeling and there isn't much better, right? And one way you can make it easier accomplishing those goals, doesn't matter how big or how small they may be, is through a therapist. Whenever I've needed to in the past, personally, I found that talking to a professional helped me figure out exactly what it was that was causing me stress and was beneficial in helping me making it better. So should you feel you need to learn how to unload your stresses, or perhaps you think you may need some emotional healing, and if you're thinking of trying the therapy route, then BetterHelp is a great option. It's very accessible, convenient for you, and very affordable, plus it's entirely online, and you can be matched with a therapist after filling out a very brief survey. What's more, if you think you've gone as far as you can with that particular therapist, you can switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your journey each time around into the depths of true crime, with tales that I've sought out from all corners of the UK and Ireland, and that sometimes you might find unreal, horrendous, sometimes unfamiliar or long forgotten, but all very true. Doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. He's black and white, and most of the time he's out like a light. Peeksy, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here with me as always. I'm sure you might hear his little bell in a minute. Actually, he's on my knee right now. And most importantly, we're joined by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts. It means as always the world that you've joined myself and the hairy football today, which we thank you for doing so, and hope that as the episode finds you, then it finds you and those closest to you all good, all safe, and all well. Continuing here then with the Lost Boys, and in the parts to date, I've brought you the harrowing, heartbreaking accounts of the murders of 14-year-old Jason Swift and 6-year-old Barry Lewis, two boys who were both missing for several months before they were discovered within five days of one another in late November and early December 1985 in Essex farmland, just nine miles apart. In the previous episode, Barry's story, we have heard how as early as January 1986, the two cases were being tentatively linked, and information was being exchanged in liaison between the separate incident rooms a month before that. It was to be May 1986 when the joint operation that had been authorised when both crimes had officially been linked, Operation Stranger, was made public. But for all the work the investigating teams were putting in, they still couldn't get that break that they needed and it was certainly not for want of effort. Nothing spurs you on like the photographs of two murdered children looking down at you to do whatever to make sure that there isn't a third after all. They were to get that break as a result of a completely unconnected inquiry and a forward-thinking police officer who wasn't afraid to be a bit of a maverick. So let's hear just how. 
The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail, sexual references, and involving sexual crimes against children that listeners may find extremely disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the third part of The Lost Boys for an episode I've entitled The Brent Connection. Two days after the body of Jason Swift had been discovered, and a couple of days before Barry Lewis's body was found, teachers at the former Downs Park Secondary School in Hackney had noticed a blue 2.8 litre Jaguar saloon car cruising backwards and forwards past the playground gates, the driver attempting to entice a 13-year-old boy inside. One of them had noted the registration number, JCH176K, and had informed police of it. Two patrolling officers subsequently spotted the vehicle a week later, parked up in Stoke Newington, and kept it under surveillance until its owner arrived back there. The owner, a 58-year-old fairground worker named Sidney Charles Cook, was then arrested and taken in for questioning, where he readily admitted to detectives that he had tried to lure the schoolboy into his car, intent on sexual activities and that he'd been committing offences against young boys for the past 15 years. His home address, a flat on the Sherrers Wharf estate in Hackney, was then searched, and his car cursorily examined, though not retained for further forensic testing, or any of the many items and trinkets in the filthy vehicle kept for examination. A point that people would rue much, much later. He was ultimately bailed to appear at Hackney Police Station on January the 8th, 1986, though this never happened, for a file on Cook was sent to the CPS, but no charges were raised against him, despite his admissions. Nonetheless, because of the nature of the reasons for his arrest, his name and details were fed into the Holmes database entry for the Jason Swift murder inquiry, the entry numbering Officer's Report number 7. Cook had been asked about the boy when interviewed by Detective Constables Neil Evans and Roy Fraser due to the close proximity of where he lived to Jason's sister's flat, but he denied knowing him. Yet, you ever get a feeling about someone? Whilst the summer of 1986 dragged on for the Operation Stranger team without a break, meanwhile, officers in Croydon, in South London, had had a massive success in breaking up a network of some 12 paedophiles who were all facing charges of sexual offences against children at a variety of locations. Unsurprisingly coined the Dirty Dozen, the network specialised in corrupting and abusing schoolboys in their early teens, preying on those who were troubled or were runaways, and in some of the cases, turning them into sex workers. For example, One such individual selected cold and hungry boys who had either escaped from care or had run away from home, kindly offering them food and a warm bed for the night, but which, of course, they would have to share with one of his clients. He would deliver a boy, the younger the better, and would get at least £10 for each introduction. Boys as young as 12 were being picked up, corrupted and horrifically abused like this and when they tired of the child, or that they felt that police were perhaps getting a bit too interested, 
they would simply pass the child on like a commodity to a like-minded group. I know, right? Stuff of nightmares, isn't it? The key informant who'd brought this to light was a 13-year-old boy, known only as Anthony, who, the previous November, even before Jason's body had been found, police had received information about that he was being held for the purposes of sex at a flat in Hackney, number 70, Templemead, on the Kingsmead estate. Now, uniformed police acting on this information, received via an anonymous telephone call, had failed to find the boy during visiting the flat that November. He'd been hidden behind a curtain. But Essex detectives had found him, purely by chance, in February 1986, when they'd raided a house in Croydon as part of the investigation into the murder of Jason Swift. By rescuing him from one of the senior figures in the Croydon gang, it had sparked off a massive investigation. Once the terrified and abused child was safe, he had no hesitation in supplying police several names, two of the first being two names that will crop up repeatedly through the remainder of the story arc. Lenny Smith, and someone we've already met, Sidney Cook, both of whom had abused him brutally over time, the boy claimed, even saying, Lenny thought that I belonged to him. As a result, both Smith and Cook were arrested and charged with offences against Anthony and then remanded in custody to Brixton Prison to await trial. Now, it was not lost on detectives that both Smith and Cook came from the same Hackney estate where Jason Swift had been living when he disappeared, and investigating rumours that Jason had been seen visiting Smith's Templemead flat in the Kingsmead estate, whilst they were on remand awaiting trial. Smith was visited in Brixton Prison by detectives from Operation Stranger, concerning this reported sighting of Jason visiting him. Hostile towards them, Smith simply replied, Bullshit, and explained that the only reason he even knew the name Jason Swift was because he'd seen the bill posts appealing for information about Jason that had scattered the estate. It was a short interview indeed, for Smith then stormed back to his cell without saying anything more, and even refused to sign the contemporaneous notes detectives had taken during the brief interview. Detectives were back to the prison on the 26th of November of that year, this time to speak to Sidney Cook, ostensibly on the basis that prison rumour had filtered back to the investigating team that Cook, during his remand period, had been talking about the murder of Jason Swift, whom he denied knowing when arrested the previous year. Now, he forcibly denied any cell block confession when he was spoken to, but it was noted just how agitated Cook became the more often Jason's name was mentioned, even at one point throwing his chair across the room in a display of bad temper. He, the same as Smith, eventually got up and stormed out of the interview, refusing to sign anything. But both were now parked in the minds of detectives. Meanwhile, the Dirty Dozen investigation discovered that a flat in the Victoria area of London, belonging to an individual named Alfred Goddard, who was the father of 80s pop star Adamant, was used as a storehouse for the victims, for want of a better word there. Here, 
as the children who were brought there were impressed by the array of gold discs belonging to Goddard's son, an array of clients from all walks of life, including members of parliament, high-profile businessmen, and even members of the clergy, would arrive to pick up their selected children. Absolutely foul, isn't it? Now, the team were to uncover many heart-wrenching stories among the abuse victims that came to light, and an example of which is as follows. One 13-year-old victim had already been the victim of a serious sexual attack when he was young, and his outraged father, when he discovered that the attack had happened, went out and murdered his son's attacker. In court, because he wanted to spare his son the ordeal of having to give evidence, the boy's father pleaded guilty and said that the motive for the murder had been one of robbery. With his father convicted and sentenced to life in prison, and with no sign of his mother being on the scene, the boy was taken into care, but after spending years in the system, he ran away from the council home where he'd been placed. Soon, he fell into the clutches of the Dirty Dozen, being constantly abused and passed amongst members, until he was rescued by police. This is the kind of filth that we are discussing here. Now, you do what it takes to ensure that filth such as responsible for that never see the light of day again, don't you? At the Old Bailey on the 5th of June 1987, after an investigation that had lasted 18 months, the Dirty Dozen gang were convicted of serious sexual offences against children and given prison sentences totaling 39 and a quarter years. Those convicted we name in shame as follows. Walter Ballantyne, 46, a stall holder at Dalston Market, was one of the ringleaders of the network. He was given six years, three months. Simon Haynes, 35, was sentenced to two years. Colin Byrne, 18, was found to have played a minor role and was sentenced to one year probation. Daniel Payne, 33, was sentenced to two years. Roy Allen Morris, 26, was sentenced to 30 months. Alfred Goddard, 58, was sentenced to two years. John Stead, 23, was sentenced to five years. Edward Talbot, 47, was sentenced to a year. Brian Turner was sentenced to five years. John Thornton, 36, who was thought to be the leader of the Croydon group, received an eight-year sentence. Now concerning the two individuals who we've met already, who were also part of this group, Sidney Cook was given a two-year sentence for the buggery of the 13-year-old boy mentioned previously, whilst Leonard William Smith received a sentence of 30 months for indecent assault on the same child. Demonstrating just how rife this was, two months before this lot were convicted, on the 17th of April 1987, in an unconnected inquiry, Hackney detectives were asked by a local family to investigate their complaint that their four-year-old child had been sexually abused by a man that they trusted as a family babysitter. Two detectives were dispatched to investigate, and when the boy was taken to a doctor for examination, it was found indeed he had suffered a sexual assault. Later that same night, an anonymous telephone call to Hackney Police led detectives to an address less than a mile from the station, where they then arrested the babysitter 
46-year-old council cleansing department worker Alan Brent, who admitted right away that he had molested the child, and furthermore, that he had a history of similar offending stretching back over 20 years. When a police constable, Carol Tonks, was tasked with developing a rapport with the young victim, she soon had such a bond with the boy that she was not only able to discover that this had not been an isolated incident, but that other members of the boy's family had also been subjected to abuse. Hackney Detective Inspector Bob Brown, another figure who will feature going forth through the arc, now assembled a core team to undertake what he labelled the Brent Inquiry, for it rapidly became clear to investigating officers that Brent was by no means acting alone in this, as when he'd confessed to the abuse, he'd also started to mention other sordid happenings in the same area. It transpired he was involved with a group of men who had abused countless children while acting as babysitters for friends and neighbours, men who had wormed their way into the lives and confidence of working class families, solely to be able to get close enough to sexually abuse their children. It also appeared that Alan Brent knew very well most of the individuals that had faced charges in the Dirty Dozen investigation. Now, the name Jason Swift was a familiar one amongst Hackney detectives, by 1987 still an unsolved case and a source of deep disappointment and unfinished business, for it was felt strongly that the solution to Jason's murder lay within their patch. So, if Alan Brent and his associates could be linked to another known paedophile gang, then Jason's couldn't hurt to be a name to put to any suspects arising in the Brent inquiry then, could it? One of the older members of the original family that had been corrupted by Brent now became crucial here. By that time 21, the young man, we shall call him Paul, had been abused for years by the gang and turned by them into a promiscuous sex worker. He had eventually become estranged from his family and had left the London area, but was ultimately traced to Edinburgh, where he was trying to make a fresh start for himself. At first, he was reluctant to talk to detectives, but when he learned that Brent had been arrested and was facing enough charges to put him away for a long time, Paul opened up. Over a six-day period, he gave a long and detailed account of how Brent and others had systematically corrupted and abused him, his two younger brothers, and other male relatives. And such quality was the evidence given by Paul, his recall painful to him no doubt, but priceless as evidence. It led to the arrest of and charges raised against several men involved in cases of sexual abuse dating back years. Paul also gave police locations where boys would be collected from, stored, as we heard with Adamant's dad, locations where boys would be procured or groomed from, and meeting places of such individuals, including details of a business premises in Mare Street in Hackney, a shoe shop called Holtz, which was where a particularly sinister, is there any other type, I ask you, paedophile gang operated from. The detective transcribing Paul's information almost stopped dead in his tracks, however, when Paul described amongst the individuals who frequented Holtz, previously meeting a teenage boy called Jason there. He couldn't recall Jason's surname, 
but he could identify him certainly as being the same boy in the photograph that the detective then showed Paul. The photograph was the one that's up in the show's Instagram page, the haunting school photograph of Jason Swift. Paul recounted, Yeah, that's definitely the same lad that. I saw him round the shop a lot. He told me his name was Jason and that he was still at school, but said he never bothered going. I think he was about 14. One time at the shop, I heard Jason being sent to a flat belonging to Robert Oliver. Now Paul knew Robert Francis Oliver only too well, for he'd sexually abused both him and his younger brother. He was also a very close friend of a certain Lenny Smith, and Robert Oliver is the next name that will crop up repeatedly. Now, on top of Paul's evidence, a 16-year-old boy came forward on the 24th of June and told police that he'd been indecently assaulted by Oliver, which was enough to bring him in for arrest. And though it took most of the afternoon to find him, Robert Oliver was eventually traced to number 5 Forsyth House, a flat on the Frampton Park estate in Hackney, that was at the time occupied by one Lillian Bailey, the son Paul and his common-law wife, Patricia Breach, and her other son, Leslie Bailey, also known as Oddbod or Catweasel, whom Robert Oliver had been sharing a room with for a few weeks. Maybe park that name too, Leslie Patrick Bailey. In fact, there's no maybe about it whatsoever. Certainly do. Told he was being arrested in connection with the investigation of sexual offences in the Hackney area, Oliver didn't protest, indeed was quite amicable, and after his room had been searched, he was taken to Hackney Police Station. Here, after he'd been placed into a cell for a good half hour, the sobering cold light of day trick, Detective Inspector Brown came down to his cell and asked him if he would talk to him about the matters he'd been arrested in connection with, which Oliver agreed to. Now taking a chance here, Detective Inspector Brown then asked him, how about Jason Swift? Will you talk to me about him? One account used for research claims that when he heard this, Oliver stood up and avoiding their gaze, walked to the other side of the room before sliding down the wall onto his haunches and holding his head in his hands. Sure that he'd hit a nerve here, D.I. Brown continued, You know about Jason's death, don't you? Oliver replied, Yes, it's been playing on my mind. I can't bear it any longer. I better tell you what I know. After talking informally for some two hours, a solicitor was called to Hackney to represent Oliver, and by 11.30pm, Oliver was cautioned again as to his rights before a formal interview began. After being shown a photograph of Jason Swift, Oliver admitted he recognised the photograph of the boy as being one, I quote, he had picked up at Victoria, that he knew Jason as a rent boy and had met him a number of times. The first time, he claimed, had been through Lenny Smith and Sidney Cook. The account that Oliver was to come out with was that one evening in November 1985, Jason had been taken to the car park of the Prince of Wales pub in Lee Bridge Road a main route running east over Hackney Marshes, for sex, or trade as he termed it. 
The vehicle he was in, and that he had died in, had been Sidney Cook's battered blue Jaguar car. Oliver told police. Sid was holding his hand around the boy's throat. I said there were tears coming out of the boy's eyes because he was hurting him, but Sid just told me to shut my mouth because I was talking stupid. When Sid finished, he just pushed the boy over the back seat and got out of the car and sat the boy up straight. I said the boy was cold. Sid said, don't be stupid, he's only acting up. Sid then said, I'll get rid of the body in the car. We went back to the Kingsmead and I saw Sid later and he said, it's all finished, I've got rid of the body in Hackney Marshes. However, Oliver was adamant he had not participated in abusing Jason. He couldn't have, for at the time he had a badly injured leg, he claimed. The causes of the injury varying from a car engine block dropping on his foot to him having a rash on his leg. He even gave details of the hospital he'd been treated at, all to be proved lies through subsequent inquiry. Essex police were, following the six-hour interview, informed of developments. Detective Chief Inspector Cass's squad was by this time down to a mere half-dozen officers having only 32 open lines of inquiry left to deal with, although on that list of inquiries were the names of Lenny Smith and Sidney Cook. Oliver was now transferred to Brentwood Police Station and allowed to rest for most of the day, whilst his account was scrutinised. A search of a room Oliver had previously lodged in at an address in Hackney was now also searched, and amongst items removed that he'd left behind there, were four small brown bottles, the type formerly used for prescription medication. The labels were marked R. Oliver, Diazepam. Oliver was now interviewed from 9.33am on the Friday morning until 5.14pm by the Essex squad, who, after the interview, told D.I. Brown that as there was not enough evidence to charge Oliver relating to Jason's murder, they were letting him out on bail, pending further inquiries. Yeah, right. So D.I. Brown here pulled a stroke of his own. Telling the Essex detectives that he wished to interview Oliver about other offences, the less serious Brent offences. When this was agreed, the Brent team instead approached Hackney, and just after 11.30pm that evening, a car containing D.I. Brown, one of his DCs, and Robert Oliver pulled into the Prince of Wales car park to get him to show them exactly where the murder had took place, according to his story. Not that they exactly believed Oliver's account, of course. They were certain that Oliver was involved in the murder, but his account of where Jason had been killed didn't convince any of them. Indeed, Detectives were later to collect a Jaguar 2.8 litre model, similar to Cook's, where three officers and a teenager were later to reenact, in theory, Oliver's version of events, and finding it impossible, as one detective describes it. But at this stage, even if they couldn't charge him with murder, they were charging him with something, and so Robert Oliver was taken back to Hackney Police Station were at 12.15am on the morning of Saturday the 27th of June 1987. The first charges issued relating to the tragic case of Jason Swift were levelled at Oliver, 
as he was accused of indecently assaulting Jason. He was also charged with two other offences in connection with the Brent inquiry, but made no reply to any of this. On the morning of Monday the 29th of June, Oliver appeared at Old Street Magistrates Court and was remanded in custody after D.I. Brown told the court he was suspected of other grave offences regarding Jason Swift. Now, by the time almost a month had passed after his arrest, police still did not have that definitive account of Jason's murder, and by the 21st of July, it was decided to speak to Leslie Bailey, the individual Oliver had been sharing a room with when he'd been arrested. Just after 10am that morning then, three of D.I. Brown's team, Detective Constable Stuart Fair, Neil Vowden and Martin Ostick, arrived at the Frampton Park estate flat and allowed entry, found Bailey sat in the front room. He was almost monosyllabic when officers told him they wanted to talk to him about Robert Oliver, but agreed to accompany them to the station to do so. Upon arrival here, Bailey refused to have a solicitor present during questioning, even though he was, at that time, only being treated as a witness and it was ultimately agreed that Major David Cozens from the Salvation Army would sit in as an independent observer. This was satisfactory to all parties, and the interview then began. A nervous, quietly spoken man, one with a speech impediment, Bailey told officers that in 1985 he lived on the Kingsmead estate with a friend of his, a fishmonger named Stephen Barrell, who now lived in Dagenham, but at the time had lived in a flat in Kingsmead House, directly opposite Ashmead House, and that a pastime for the two was to repair cars for people on the estate. He claimed to have met Robert Oliver for the first time in November of that year, when Oliver was living in a fourth floor flat in Ashmead House with a man called Donald Smith, who everyone nicknamed Uncle. Aside from Oliver, a minicab driver named Dave also shared the property. Bailey claimed that he and Stephen Barrell had gone to Ashmead House one November day to repair a faulty water pump on Dave the minicab driver's Ford Granada, and as they were working on the car in the communal parking area outside the block, had found themselves a screwdriver of the right side short, so Bailey had made his way up to Smith's flat to fetch one. He then told the two officers that when he entered, quote, as I was leaving, I popped my head around the corner and looked into the living room. There was a white-faced boy lying on his back on the settee, covered by a grey blanket with a red border. It was the boy in the picture. The only part of his body not covered was his head. His skin was pure white, like a ghost, and his eyes were closed. I don't think I'll ever forget that particular moment. Bailey claimed that he didn't know the boy in the picture at the time, but he did now. The picture he'd been shown was, of course, the school photograph of Jason Swift. Chain-smoking Benson and Hedges cigarettes, Bailey claimed that although he knew Uncle, he'd never before been into number 36, yet he could describe the squalid Ashmead flat in detail, right down to its bay-windowed front room its long brown leather settee with matching armchairs, square teak-coloured coffee table and brown triangular patterned carpet. 
Another feature of the squalid flat, though Bailey didn't include this in his description here, was propped in one corner of the room, a large stuffed panda, the type that are, or at least were back in the 80s, given away as fairground prizes. Bailey said that when he'd gotten the screwdriver, he'd left the flat and gone back downstairs to continue working on the car with Stephen Barrell. He went on. A short while later, Sid and Robert came down the stairs where the back door of Cookie's Jag was already opened. They were carrying a long thin bundle which was wrapped in the grey blanket with a red border. I stopped working on the car and watched them. Bailey claimed that his friendship with Rob Oliver had continued from this point and two weeks before he'd been arrested in June, Oliver had even moved into Bailey's mother's flat sharing a bedroom with Bailey. People talk, as you do, and one evening, Bailey claimed, his new roommate had begun talking about the murder of Jason Swift. He continued, We were both lying in our beds and Robert was talking. I got the impression that he wanted to talk to someone about it, so I just listened. Bailey said that Oliver had told him that Cook had brought Jason and another boy back to the flat for sex, continuing. Robert said that as he was in the front room, he heard a scream come from the main bedroom, and Sid was in there with the boy. He said he went through, and Sid had told him not to worry, that the boy was just frightened and scared. Later when he came back through, Robert asked Sid where the boy was, and was told, he's asleep in the bedroom. Robert said that he went back into the bedroom a bit later, and returned to the front room, saying, The boy's dead. He said the next day, he and one of the others had called police to say there'd been a murder on the Kingsmead. Bailey told detectives that he had told Oliver he had seen the body being taken out of the flat, and then said to them, I would be willing to go to court and give evidence. Now, a lot of what Bailey had come out with here was tangible enough. A flat in Ashmead House, which was no more than a hundred yards from where Jason had been living when he disappeared, was a much more likely location for a murder to have taken place, rather than the cramped inside of a Jaguar car. And several of the individuals that Bailey had named here corresponded exactly with names that Robert Oliver had put forward when he was arrested. But... Even though they thought he was telling a truth, they were sure that there were some details he was omitting. So, how do you fix that? When Bailey emerged from this interview, he was approached by Detective Constable Neil Vowden, who then arrested him on suspicion of the murder of Jason Swift, to which Bailey said nothing as he was led downstairs to the custody suite. Looking at Bailey further, and a visit to the Hackney Crime Intelligence Coordinator showed that Bailey had a bit of a past, shall we say. And in fact, earlier that year, police had received intel coming from the Kingsmead estate that Bailey was involved in sexual offences involving children. He had also been put forward as a suspect for two other indecent assaults on another estate nearby, and 14 years before, in 1973, he had been accused of attempted murder and indecent assault on a seven-year-old girl. Although some confusion over the admissibility of evidence 
meant that the charge was reduced to one of possession of a knife. Then, in 1979, he was sentenced to five years imprisonment for a vicious sex attack on a woman in East London. He'd followed his victim into a block of flats, joining her in the lift as the doors closed, before launching into an attack on her, battering her savagely. He then stopped the lift and sent it down to the basement, before dragging the terrified woman out and raping her. Following his release from this sentence, Bailey's next brush with the law was on the 6th of July 1984, when he was fined £30 at Old Street Magistrates Court, charged with handling a stolen certificate of insurance, an offence he'd been arrested for on the 1st of June 1984, a date that will become all too familiar somewhat later on in the arc. So, a general vile scumbag already, I'm sure you'll agree. A raid was now planned and coordinated to pick up the other individuals Bailey had mentioned here, and whilst the raid was planned for Ashmead House the following morning, two detectives from Essex went that evening to the Dagenham home of Stephen Barrell, where at 10.45pm he was arrested on suspicion of involvement in the murder of Jason Swift, and taken to Brentwood Police Station. The following morning at 7am, Detectives converged on the doorstep of number 36 Ashmead House, only to find that the occupant, uncle, 63-year-old Donald William Smith, a chef, had already left for work that morning, but by 8.50am he'd been traced to an office block in Holborn, where he was then arrested on suspicion of murder in front of his colleagues. Later that morning, Bailey agreed to lead detectives back to the Kingsmead estate to show them exactly where he was when he claimed he and Barrel had allegedly seen the body of the murdered boy being brought out to Sidney Cook's Jaguar, in doing so pointing out a spot some hundred yards or so from the entrance. It was whilst here, and when he was asked to rerun through his story exactly, that Bailey now shocked detectives by embellishing much more on his account, saying, they said give us a hand and I assisted by holding the boy's head as he was carried to the bathroom and placed into the bath. He was naked in the bath and I noticed bruising under his arm and a cut on his bottom. Robert said it had been caused by a kitchen knife. Both detectives noticed how Bailey seemed agitated and hesitant when he told them this, as though he had something more he desperately wanted to get off his chest. When asked outright if he had more to tell, he nodded, and although he was advised that he was better off having a solicitor present as he did so, Bailey declined this. Over a cup of tea, as he sat in the detective's car, Bailey told the officers, I saw his face go white, his eyes bulged and went purple at the bottom. A tear ran down his face from inside his eye, and then he went unconscious. At that moment, both detectives realised he had just described the murder of Jason Swift. When a formal interview was arranged for that afternoon, in a reversal of roles, Detective Constable Fair led the interview, decreed to as he had built up somewhat of a rapport with Bailey, while D.I. Brown transcribed. Over the next six hours, again with Major Cozen's present, and punctuated by occasional breaks, 
a mumbling Leslie Bailey then gave the officers a graphic account of the last few hours of Jason Swift's life. He began by naming the men who were present. Now, it is believed to be between 10 and 12 individuals, though confirmation of everyone named has never been revealed. There will be names that have featured so far throughout the arc, and other names that may feature that likely make up the attendees of what Bailey declared disgustingly and somewhat unbelievably as Jason's party yes I kid you not Jason's party the stuff of nightmares indeed that isn't it the following contains disturbing content aside from the others present Bailey admitted that he was there also though Bailey was adamant he'd not taken part in the sickening orgy insisting it was wrong, I quote, for grown men to do it to kids. Instead, he was at pains to stress that he had merely helped to hold Jason down by holding one of his wrists. There was, he claimed, another boy in the room at the time who had been brought to the flat for sex, a young Asian boy, stood in the corner watching the whole thing unfold before he left with Robert Oliver. Part of the transcript of Bailey's horrific confession reads as follows. DC Fair. Did you hold him down, Les? Bailey. Yeah, yeah. He was on the bed, being held in a star pattern. I was holding his wrist. Was he enjoying it? No, he was screaming, struggling. He shouted stop and said that he was frightened. How many times did he shout that out? Twice. Where was the other boy? Was he a friend of Jason's? I don't know. He was in the corner, standing, watching. Why did they wash the body? They said they were going to take it to hospital. It. Yeah, terrible, eh? How long was the body in the bath? Ten minutes, maybe longer? Was he washed with soap? Soap, yes. Was he left in the bath alone? Only when Sid came out for something and Robert came out for a cup of tea. Where did you take the body? Up to the forest. Sid drove the car, the Jaguar. How long did it take? Two and a half hours. Why did it take so long? Sid wasn't rushing. He was just cruising in the slow lane. Where did you end up? To me it looked like a field, but there were trees on the right hand side. Sid headed for the bushes. He pulled up two light blackberry bushes to get rid of the body. Did you lift up the bushes, Les? I lifted up the end sort of part. We got the body out of the car and Sid dragged it to the bushes. I held it while Sid undone the blanket. Who hid the body? Sid held up one end of the bush and pushed the body with his feet. Then he came over to me and pushed the other half in. Then put leaves and dirt over it. Where did you go then? Back to the Kingsmead. Steve was there working on Dave's car. I asked him how much longer he'd be, and he said, not too long. That was it. What about Sid? He went straight out after he dropped me off. I thought he might have just gone to get the shopping and that. Yes, these two individuals could be nonchalant enough to go immediately back to inquiring about bloody cars or able to just go out and do something every day like shopping for groceries. 
immediately after dumping the naked body of a boy, a child, like he was no more than a piece of rubbish. Bailey even refers to him as it. Disgusting, depraved, monstrous, what do you even call them? Bailey claimed that he knew the Onger area from being at school there as a child, and so it was agreed for him to retrace the route that they'd taken to dispose of Jason that November day in 1985, which Bailey agreed to do. In the company of Detective Inspector Dave Bright, Detective Chief Inspector Cass's deputy, Detective Constable Stuart Fair, and his solicitor, Leslie Bailey led police back to the spot where Jason was dumped, give or take a hundred yards. As this was two years later, and a different season, so the topography of the area looked different, his near accuracy convinced officers that he was telling the truth here. Now also, this was the second time that Bailey had mentioned another boy being present at the time, but to this day, if this second boy existed, he's never been traced or identified. The general belief amongst officers was that he genuinely existed. It seemed illogical for Bailey to introduce a second boy into the scenario as some figment of his imagination. Despite extensive inquiries, this second boy was never found as I say, and perhaps the full truth will never be fully known. But, there is always that grim possibility that, perhaps there's another body out there somewhere, long buried, and as yet, undiscovered in a shallow country grave. We might discuss that more towards the end of the arc. Essex police were at the time undergoing a major review of their interview procedures prior to the introduction of tape-recorded interviews. Standard today, these tell so much more than any conventional question-and-answer interrogations that are transcribed in dry, detached answers. I'm sure the account of Bailey's questioning I've read out is shocking enough to hear, but imagine how much different that would be hearing the tape of him saying all that. A clip of which is as follows. Cookie told the young boy to undress. A voice from the grave that implicates Sidney Cook in the killing of two more children. Uh, Cookie say he was going have sex with the boy. Chills the blood, that doesn't it? Chills the blood. It's the suspect's own voice in these recordings, with all its inflections or inferences and emotions that go with it, where responses can tell so much more due to tone or hesitancy, and silence can be as damning as any reply. Other police forces were at the time involved in similar reviews on behest of the Home Office, the idea being to select the best procedures from forces nationwide and incorporate them into the taped interview procedure scheduled for the following year. It was decided that the Operation Stranger team would utilise their developed programme and bring it forward, meaning that the Jason Swift suspects became the first ever prisoners to be officially interviewed on tape. Now, Stephen Barrell was of course still in custody at this time, and following his arrest had continued to plead his innocence over four hours of questioning, the initial interviews being undertaken by Detective Sergeant Colin Seal and Detective Constable David Murray. 
He corroborated Bailey's initial story. The pair had been mend in the car outside Ashmead House, and he had indeed seen people going in and out of the flat, but he categorically denied knowing what had gone on inside, and had certainly taken no part in it. Barrel was unaware, however, that at the same time, police were taking a lengthy statement from his former partner and the mother of his two children, Janet Fitzsimmons, the couple having split the previous year. Janet told officers that one night in November 1985, both Barrel and Bailey had arrived home, saying, Both were very badly frightened, Stephen was physically shaking, and Leslie was very nervous. Stephen said they'd been to a flat in Ashmead, and they saw a young bloke lying face down in an empty bath, and that he was in a bad way. There was an awful lot of blood. They were both shaken and scared, and Stephen told me not to answer the door that night. She'd also told police that on the day of Jason's death, Barrel had arrived home with his t-shirt heavily bloodstained, which he'd given to his partner on the express orders that she was to throw it out. He'd then taken a long bath to thoroughly clean himself, and had even shaved off his habitual moustache, before Leslie Bailey had jumped into the already dirty bathwater after Barrel to clean himself off, too. Barrel claimed that her entire statement was untrue when confronted with it, but towards the end of his questioning, he admitted to Detective Inspector Bright that he wanted to get things off his chest. He admitted that he'd gone to Ashmead House knowing that something good and exciting, how he put it, was going to happen, though he claimed he had stayed in the kitchen whilst he was there. And it was whilst he was there in the kitchen of number 36, having a cup of tea, when he heard a painful scream coming from the bedroom. Heading in there to investigate the source of this, he saw Jason being held down and then go still. I thought, in my own mind, he's died, Barrel added. Donald Smith, the man not from Uncle, but known as Uncle, and the tenant of 36 Ashmead, where he'd lived for the previous eight years, was also interviewed at length for two days at Brentwood Police Station by Detective Constables Ken Foster and Ernest Carr, and whom they found to be a devious individual indeed. A small man with lank, greasy hair, but who attempted to offset this by always wearing a collar and tie, admitted to being homosexual, but sought to place all blame on others, continually changing his story as to what had occurred in his home involving a group of men and at least one boy. Hailing from Middlesbrough, where he'd been born in 1924, Smith had joined the Northumberland Fusiliers towards the end of the Second World War, but had been discharged after just six months due to bad nerves. He'd then subsequently joined the Merchant Navy and had travelled the world, and though he did go through with a token marriage to a woman from Lowestoft, it was here at sea that he was introduced to, and adopted, homosexuality as a preference. In the late 1960s, he'd left the Navy and returned to the north of England, working in a bakery before he left there and headed down to London, henceforth working in fairly regular employment, flitting between catering jobs. He also developed himself a minor criminal record over this time, mainly for charges of theft, and to supplement his income, 
started to take in lodgers to his squalid three-bedroom flat, mostly young working labourers, but occasionally seedier ones. Two of his lodgers here were Lenny Smith and Robert Oliver, who he allowed to cohabit in a bedroom, and Uncle, I shall refer to him as that to avoid confusion with the other Smith that I've mentioned, admitted to police that Smith and Oliver used to go out to procure young boys, or chickens, as he referred to them, to bring them back to the flat for sex. He'd admitted there'd been an incident one night, but said that he'd left and had not returned to the flat until the early hours. However, like Oliver had before him, and Cook, when the name had been mentioned, Uncle seemed troubled when he was shown a photograph of Jason, and then told police that he wanted to get it off his chest. He now said that on the night in question, he had been in bed and had heard a boy screaming, and then when he got out of bed at 6am, there was a body lying on the settee, covered with a blanket. Now, incredibly, Smith told police that he'd heard on a news bulletin a few days later about the discovery of Jason's body, and it had crossed his mind that this might be connected to the one he'd seen in his flat. He also came out with an account which contradicted this ludicrous sounding tale that Bailey had struck the boy over the head with an iron bar during an argument over who was going to go next. Foul, isn't it? The following morning, Bailey, Barrel and Uncle all appeared at Old Street Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Jason Swift. Following these arrests and charges, police now interviewed Robert Oliver once again over three days, and though he went right around the houses to do so, he eventually admitted taking part in a gay orgy at the flat involving Jason, but claimed that Jason was all right when he'd left. So, by now named by Bailey and Oliver, it was now time to interview once again Sidney Cook. He was easy enough to find, at that point doing a two-year stretch in Brixton Prison for his part in the Croydon Dirty Dozen case, and was interviewed by Essex Detectives D.I. Bright and Detective Constable Andy Down on the 28th of July 1987, Detective Inspector Bright's birthday. When Cook was brought into the interview room, he waived his right to have a solicitor present, but instead requested prison officer Ken Tiley sit in on the interview, which was accepted. Again, Cook was another that went right around the houses, but persevering, as time went on, the officers were beginning to get Cook to make admissions. There was some consternation here when Cook was on the verge of admitting serious stuff and prison officers threatened to turn off the lights and power to the interview room, as prison rules stated that all interviews and legal visits should cease by 4pm. It was subsequently arranged through some wangling that the interview could continue until 7pm, subject to Officer Tiley being prepared to wait, which he was in immediate agreement with. As the interview progressed then, Cook, while stopping short of admitting anything that incriminated him, admitted more and more of his proclivity for young boys. By the time 7pm arrived, and the end of the 8th 45-minute tape, 
A prison officer entered the room and told the officers they had 10 minutes to leave. And so, with their hands tied, D.I. Bright told Cook, We should be back tomorrow, Sydney. Got more questions to put to you. And as yet, I've not told you what other persons involved have said. Cook replied, No, sir, you haven't. He then began to cry and fell to his knees in a praying position, repeating over and over, It wasn't meant to happen. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. Pressing Cook further on this, he eventually said, when asked what had happened, I don't know for sure. Someone grabbed him, drugged him and used him. It could be Lenny. There were six of us. It wasn't meant to happen like that. Following this, and with it impossible to continue the interview that evening, it was arranged to interview Cook once again the following day, and when asked in light of what he'd revealed if he wished to reconsider having a solicitor present, Cook again waived his right to, though he did request his Salvation Army prison visitor, Walter Matthews, be an observer, saying, We pray together. Cook went on to admit that he'd made an anonymous telephone call to police on New Year's Eve 1985 concerning Jason because he'd been burning inside like a fucking big fire. Before he was led out, Cook even lay down on the floor in a star-shaped position to demonstrate the position of the body when Jason was killed. He was, however, adamant that he didn't kill Jason, saying, I didn't design the murder of that young man. His parting words to Inspector Bright were, I quote, You'll never forget this birthday, eh? Monster indeed. The following day, Walter Matthews was unavailable, but a replacement was found in the form of Salvation Army Lieutenant Colonel Derek Tribble, an arrangement the cook found satisfactory. In all, Over the two days of questioning, which took 18 tapes, each lasting 45 minutes, Cook gave some of the most disturbing accounts that anyone could ever possibly hear. He gave accounts of the killing at three different locations, firstly at Hackney Marshes, then at another flat he'd been lured inside after seeing what was going on through the window, but the final one being in a flat on the Kingsmead estate. Cook told officers that he'd been invited to a gangbang by Robert Oliver, and Lenny Smith had arrived at the flat with a boy who was willing to do anything, for which each man present had to pay £5 for his services. Cook named six people who were present, including Robert Oliver, Lenny Smith and himself. It cannot be sure exactly because different people named different numbers present but hazard a guess that the other three present Cook has named here are Donald Smith, Leslie Bailey and Stephen Barrell. Cook denied the buggery of Jason, but said that the others he had mentioned had all done so, and at one point during the interview, Cook placed his hands on D.I. Bright's shoulders to demonstrate how Jason had been held down. He told the detectives that Jason had been given a rabbit chop, and that he had heard gurgling noises before Jason had been knocked unconscious. I only stayed to see that they didn't hurt him, Cook said. Bless him.
can you believe this shit or what I? He also admitted disposing of Jason's body along with Leslie Bailey, making the journey in his blue Jaguar and ensuring that the scene was evidence-free by taking with them the blanket and coat that Jason's body had been wrapped in. Now, hearing any part of this would be disturbing enough for anyone, I'm sure you'll agree, but there was worse to come. When Cook was asked if Jason had made any sounds when he died, a question placed so if he answered it definitively, it could place him at the scene of Jason's death at the relevant time. Cook brought the microphone close to his mouth and let out what was described as a low, chilling gurgle that came from the back of his throat. He then repeated this sound to ensure that the tape had picked this up. What on earth do you say to that? Detective Inspector Bright, now long since retired, describes the moment in his memoirs as This evil man seemed to be enjoying it. Cook, I felt, was reliving every nauseating second of it, reliving it for us to hear, perhaps gaining some vicarious pleasure in watching our reactions. David Bright's memoir, Catching Monsters, is a fascinating read, by the way, and one that's been invaluable in creating the arc. I do highly recommend it. Six days after being interviewed by the Essex detectives, Cook completed his sentence, and as the gates of Brixton Prison opened, and he walked onto the street a free man for the first time in a long time, the first faces Cook saw were Detective Constables Neil Evans and Paul Butler from Essex Constabulary, who immediately re-arrested him on suspicion of the murder of Jason Swift. The following morning, both Cook and Robert Oliver appeared at Old Street Magistrates Court charged with Jason's murder and were remanded in custody back in the nick before you knew it. Oliver further appeared at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court on the 28th of September where he pleaded guilty to a charge arising from the Brent Inquiry that he'd indecently assaulted a 16-year-old boy at a party and for which he was jailed for a further three months. Lenny Smith, meanwhile, was released from Wandsworth Prison at 7.30am on the 23rd of October to also be immediately met at the prison gates by Essex detectives and taken to Brentwood for further questioning. The following day, he too appeared in court charged with Jason's murder and was remanded back into custody. On the 15th of February 1988, committal proceedings against Leslie Bailey, Donald Smith Lenny Smith, Stephen Barrell, Robert Oliver and Sidney Cook began at Lambeth Magistrates Court in South London and lasted over a three-day hearing before it was ultimately adjourned until April of that year. When it resumed that month, only Leslie Bailey and Robert Oliver faced committal for trial at the Old Bailey on charges of murder, conspiracy to bugger and gross indecency. The murder charge against Barrel, Cook and Donald Smith had been exchanged for the lesser one of manslaughter and various sexual offences against Jason Swift, whilst Cook and Leslie Bailey also faced committal charges relating to the disposal of Jason's body. Lenny Smith, however, walked from the court a free man after his solicitors had successfully argued that he, unlike the other five, 
had made no confessions of any kind and that the statements made by the others couldn't be used against him which just doesn't seem quite right that does it the following month also the brent inquiry came to conclusion at the old bailey where 46 year old alan john brent also known as john alan spicer and andrew spicer received a five-year prison sentence after pleading guilty to indecently assaulting young boys, whilst four other men involved in this inquiry, including 72-year-old Roy Becker and 62-year-old Brian Owen, were given prison sentences ranging from 18 months to two and a half years. Hell of a lot of scum back in London then, it seems, doesn't it? Just before 2pm on Monday the 15th of March 1989, Cook, Bailey, Oliver and Barrel were led into the dock of court number one of the Old Bailey up the 20 steps from the cells below. All four accused of the manslaughter of Jason Swift and various other offences connected with that crime. During the previous period of legal argument, Donald Smith had been found not guilty by direction of presiding Mr Justice Charles McCullough after the Crown had offered no evidence against him and he was set free. The charges against Bailey and Oliver had also by then been reduced to those of manslaughter, the CPS fearing that contradictory evidence of each accusing the other would make a murder charge possibly unsustainable. The seven men and five women of the jury had been sworn in on February the 20th before being sent home with a strict warning for non-disclosure concerning the case and they now filed back into the court to hear counsel for the prosecution Julian Bevan QC's opening address which goes in part as follows and the following does make for disturbing listening. When you get a case that is emotionally charged as this one You quite deliberately avoid extravagant language and adjectives. You don't need to say that this is a terrible killing. The facts speak for themselves. You may well find the facts of this case disturbing because it concerns the killing by suffocation of a 14-year-old boy during the course of a homosexual orgy. He then went on to describe the discovery of Jason's body before recounting his tragic life and his sad last few months alive, continuing. This boy, having run away, had become involved in a world of men who find sexual gratification with young boys. He became easy prey for such men because it seemed that he had homosexual tendencies, was lonely, timid, rather effeminate, and would do almost anything for money. No doubt he scrounged a living by lending his body to men used him as no more than a vessel for their sexual gratification. One night in November 1985, probably the 27th, a sexual orgy took place in Donald Smith's flat. All these defendants were present, and the object of their sexual desire was Jason Swift. The boy was to be paid £5 for sex, but no money changed hands. Each man who wanted to bugger the boy had to pay, as well as for other sexual practices, including masturbation and oral sex. They were there to have sex and to enjoy watching others. Jason was repeatedly buggered, as well as subjected to other acts, 
His head at times was held down to make him submit, and items were forcibly inserted into his anus. It is inconceivable that he submitted willingly to all these acts. During the course of this orgy, he was suffocated by pressure to his neck, throat and mouth to provide leverage for buggery. He was held down for one and a half to two minutes, and it must have been obvious to those present that the boy was quiet and having difficulty breathing. Yet no one did anything to alleviate his suffering and release him from that pressure. Leslie Bailey described the moment of death in a statement to detectives, saying, The boy's eyes bulged and his face went purple. A tear ran down his cheek and he went unconscious. When it was apparent that he was dead, his naked body was put into a bath and submerged. It was then wrapped in a blanket and left overnight in the living room of that three-bedroom flat. The body was then put in the boot of Cook's car and driven away. He stayed within the speed limit for fear of being stopped. In the summer of 1987, these defendants were arrested and made various admissions. All of them were present during the orgy. It is manifestly obvious that anyone present was there exclusively by choice and with the intention of taking part. You don't get innocent spectators in such a situation. This orgy was a private affair witnessed only by those who encouraged all that took place. All those agreed to the use of force to make him submit, and they encouraged each other to use that force, including the final act of violence that killed him. Those who watched and did nothing were party to that final act. Over the 50 days of the trial, the prosecution called several witnesses, police officers, pathologists, independent witnesses, to support the taped accounts that police had, and also to show that not only was Jason known to each of the defendants, but also to Lenny Smith. Though, as we've said, unbelievably, he was not in the dock also, he didn't escape being mentioned during proceedings, beginning in the opening address. Not one of the defendants themselves gave evidence. At several points throughout the trial, the jurors were visibly moved and chilled by what they heard and saw. They were to visit the cops where Jason's body had been discovered during the course of it, though by far, the most chilling moment came during the tape recording of one of Cook's interviews being played in full. As requested by his defence counsel in an attempt to show that Cook had been verbally harassed and coerced into making admissions. During that interview, the jury heard Cook imitating the gurgling, croaking noises that he claimed Jason Swift had made as he died, as I described earlier. Presiding Mr. Justice McCullough's face went white and he was forced to reach for a glass of water before he could compose himself to speak, for he had glanced over towards the dock and saw Cook not only unmoved by what had just been played, but actually smiling. Wicked beyond all imagination, eh? Late on the afternoon of Friday the 12th of May, after deliberating overnight, the jury returned with unanimous verdict of guilty on all counts against all four defendants, the strain of the evidence they'd sat through showing on the faces of each member of the jury. 
One even broke down and wept openly as the four-person gave the results of their deliberations. Each were invited to return to court number one on the following Monday, the 15th, to witness the conclusion of the case, Mr Justice McCullough's sentencing remarks, and all bar one member did. Reportedly also, such an effect had the trial on them that for years afterwards they stayed in touch and met up annually for a celebration of Jason's life. That Monday, ordering the four defendants to stand, Mr Justice McCullough told them, I find it difficult to imagine a worse case of manslaughter. It is certainly the most horrific I have had to deal with. I do not intend to use unnecessary adjectives to describe your behaviour. It speaks for itself. You are all responsible for this death. It makes no difference that the boy was prepared to engage in certain homosexual acts or that he was experienced in selling his young body for money. It should have been apparent to each and every one of you that what was being done to him created a risk to his life. Quite apart from the actions which killed him, the other things done to him were deliberate, cruel, painful and terrifying. Four of you at least were taking part in these assaults, and he was a boy of only 14 years. When he lost consciousness, no one summoned an ambulance or sought help in those vital early minutes during which his life may have been saved. To have that done would have meant almost certain discovery, and to you, discovery meant more than Jason's death. The judge's strongest words were levelled at Sidney Cook, however, as he told him, The sentence you must serve is a terrible one for a man of your age, but what you did was truly terrible. You were the dominant influence, and one word from you could have stopped the agony of Jason Swift. 62-year-old Cook was then sentenced to 19 years' imprisonment on each charge of manslaughter, conspiracy to bugger, and disposing of Jason's body. Leslie Bailey and Robert Oliver were given 15 years for each charge of manslaughter, conspiracy to bugger, and in Bailey's case, attempting to choke Jason, and Stephen Edward Barrell, 13 and a half years for manslaughter and conspiracy to bugger, with each sentence to run concurrently for each individual, a collective total of 174 years. Members of Jason's family, including his mother Joan, his father Sidney and his sister Haley, who had been in court each day of the trial, had to leave the public dock weeping as each of the sentences were given out, unable to watch any longer. None of the defendants had shown even a flicker of emotion or remorse. Cook and Oliver especially had even seemed to revel in the notoriety, and after no reply from any, were each then led away to begin their sentences. Reportedly, as soon as the four arrived in the reception area of Wandsworth Prison following their sentencing, they were each immediately savagely attacked by other inmates, who had read of their crimes and were baying for their blood. Prison officers had to move in quickly, though I'm sure not massively rushing in, of course, to prevent the four being lynched or beaten to death, and all four were immediately then taken to the wing for Rule 43 prisoners, 
to be kept in solitary confinement due to the horrific nature of their crimes. Yet, even here prison justice managed to strike, Cook alone was attacked on at least two other occasions over the next few months, including once having his jaw broken when he was knocked out with a prison cosh consisting of a sockful of batteries. Doesn't your heart just absolutely bleed? Now, we leave those four parked there in prison for the time being, and you may be thinking, okay, that's Jason who's seen justice, or some semblance of it then, I'll save my own thoughts about the entire tale for the arc's end. But what then about Barry? Well, things were to develop further, which I shall come on to explain about in the next part of The Lost Boys. With such a complex and reaching tale, you have to be able to compartmentalise and separate parts of it, and that's more than a fitting place to leave it for the time being. Whereas also you may think I've skimmed over some things, and I've somewhat just chucked names out there with no background to them or nothing, we shall meet the monsters properly over time. Trust me, it's all put together in my head. With that then, I shall go off and shake a bit more of this out of my head, onto paper and then onto the air. I thank you all so kindly for joining me and the Toothless Negative today. As I said previously, and as I'll continue to, I know it's a disturbing tale this one, but it's also an important one to tell, to ensure that compassion and remembrance go where they're meant to, and revulsion, hatred and disgust go where they belong also. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, be safe, and keep your loved ones safe. And goodbye for now.